to the Design Ops podcast, the weekly show where we look to improve how we work together, how we get work done, and the impact our work has. I'm your host, Sean Johnson, and this week I'm delighted to speak to somebody who's been fundamental in my learning of UX and me getting to where I am in my career today. Please welcome Mr. Andy Budd. Oh, thank you. That's so kind, Sean. Really nice to uh, have the opportunity to chat with you today. Awesome. Thank you. Well, let's go back to the early to mid noughties, right? Most of most web people have made that transition from table-based layouts to CSS. Um, mm-hmm. I think most of us around that time were self-taught, reliant on blogs and books, and your CSS Mastery book was quite prominent on my bookshelf. We were starting to focus a lot more on accessibility and usability off the back of the web standards movement. Uh, and I think in the background, there were murmurings of this thing called UX. It's about the time I started to hear about this cool little agency in Brighton called Clearleft, and you guys were talking a lot about user experience. Um, I learned a lot from you and your colleagues, so thank you for that. Um, you went on to put some great conferences on, uh, Deconstruct, and one of my favorites, a proper nerdy conference about web type, Ampersand. Um, and then you <laughs> rolled out the big guns with UX London and more recently, uh, Leading Design. You've recently stepped away from Clearleft, right? So what are you doing now? Um, yeah, well, first of all, thanks for that sort of lovely trip down memory lane. It feels like it's been a while <laughs> since I've uh, talked to anyone who remember the kind of the heady days of the web standards movement or was around when we were building you know websites with tables rather than CSS. Yeah. <laughs> I, I occasionally meet designers now when I tell them about this thing called web standards and how we used to do things back in the day and they look gobsmacked. So um, I, I really am sort of becoming one of those kind of like old crusties from, <laughs> from back in the day. Um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So for about 15 years, I run a, a really sort of well-respected design agency in Brighton called Clearleft. Um, that was, you know, arguably the first um, agency to practice user experience design. We ran a lot of conferences, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also, as you say, um, about, I guess, maybe sort of two years ago, I stepped away from Clearleft. We went through uh, a process of employee ownership. So actually, right. um, now the company is owned by the team. And that was something that I always wanted to do. Like, I really, really appreciate all the time and the work and the effort that the people that have worked at Clearleft have put into making Clearleft what it was. It wasn't just a thing that me and, and, and Jeremy Keith created. It was a, a thing that was sort of, you know, um, benefited from all the amazing talent that we had come through the company through the years. And so I wanted to like not, you know, run it down or sell it to some big, you know, technical implementer and the brand disappears and three or four years later people go, oh yeah, what, what have ever, ever happened to Clearleft? Um, I wanted to keep it running and keep it going. And I think the best way I decided to do that was to put it in the hands of the makers, put it in hands of the designers, right. the developers, the ops people. And so, yeah, we, we went through this process and now the company is run and owned by the staff. Awesome. And um, I thought that was a perfect time to step away. Um, nobody wants a backseat driver. Now there's a new in ownership sort of team there. The last thing they wanted is me kind of trying to go, oh, you should do this, you should do that, you should do something else. Um, so I uh, decided it was time to sort of move on for Pastors New. Um, to be honest, I didn't really have a plan about what I was going to do, but I sort of ended up sort of landing into two areas that actually make a lot of sense, you know, based on my mission and my interests. Um, so the thing that's driven me all through the period that you talked about, through the web standards movement, through the, the rise of user experience design, through the conferences, has been a real strong belief about the value of design mm-hmm. and how if businesses, if organizations um, were able to take design a little bit more seriously, the outsized impact we could have. Um, you know, we see all these graphs of companies that are design-led performing really well in the stock market. You you look at success stories like Apple and Airbnb. Um, but the reason I can name Apple and Airbnb is because actually there's so few and far between. Um, right. Most tech companies these days are driven through business or sales or marketing or engineering. So by trying to blog, by trying to speak at conferences and organize conferences, my goal has always been to try and elevate the design industry. Mm-hmm. And back in 
in the day, the agency world was the best medium. You know, back in the day, the agencies were the ones that were getting coverage in magazines, they were the ones being invited to conferences, et cetera, et cetera. But the environment's changed. Now, when you look at who's being invited to speak, it's not agencies, it's not bloggers, it's not freelancers. It's designers, design leaders from Google, Facebook, Airbnb, you know, Deliveroo and all these other companies. So I still think there's a big role for agencies in the industry. But I think the role of them as thought leaders, to use that horrible term, has kind of diminished slightly. And so I wanted to kind of go somewhere where I can have a bit more impact and, and, and help people in a different way. So the two things I've been doing. So first off, I've been coaching a lot of design leaders. So over the last year, I've coached about 40 or 50 design and product leaders, heads, directors and VPs of design. These are mostly people that were practitioners four or five years ago, have moved into leadership. Maybe their first leadership job wasn't quite as successful as I'd hoped. It was challenging. They were having to juggle still being a bit of a practitioner with a leader. None of the the, the core kind of behaviours are in place. The company didn't really appreciate design leadership and so they struggled. Right. So I've been kind of coaching people to help them, well, partly to help them on their on their design leadership career, but as a big part of that, help them upskill the organisations and get them taking more value from design. And so a lot of the conversations I have with design leaders and product leaders is how can we hire the right people? How can we get the right resources? How can we make the CEO, the CPO, the CTO really care about design? And so a lot of my work with those people have been raising the profile of design in their role. And that's great and it's fun and it's really important. And I'm seeing more and more people take on leadership roles in organizations than ever before. So I think if you look at like where design leadership was 10 years ago and where it is now, it's 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 moved forward in leaps and bounds. Companies are taking design seriously enough to have people leading that as a function. It's not just the CTO or project manager looking after it. It's a dedicated design. But um, it's still a challenge. These people are still finding themselves in cultures that don't quite understand design, that think design is still around pushing pixels, that don't understand why designers would want to be talking to customers because that's the product manager's job. They don't understand why designers would be wanting to um, be involved in the backlog management or the vision setting because surely what you do is the, the project managers or the product managers do that and then we just deliver. And so there's still a problem, there's still a gap. And what I what I kind of realised is that one of the best ways to solve that gap would be to get design at the ground floor. You know, if you're the first designer that's hired in a company of 20 or 30 people, if you're the first design leader that's been hired in a company of 100 and 200 people, you're probably already a little bit too late. Whereas if you can start talking to founders when they start the product, when they're just two people in a bedroom, and if you can encourage them to think about design as a more strategic function, if you can help them hire designers as their first hire, their second hire, um, and then they can work with amazing designers and see the benefits that design can bring, then that culture gets set from day one. And so I have decided to go on a bit of a journey uh, and um, I've, I've I sort of moved into the kind of the dark side, if you will, of venture capital. So I'm right. now a, a VC partner. I'm a partner at a VC firm called Seacamp. And my day job is, is often finding amazing startups, investing in those startups, and then supporting the founders of those startups and, and helping those startups view how design, particularly because this is my background and passion, forms a big part of their potential success. How using design can help them pick the right solution, you know, build a, a better product, build a product that customers need, use, want, can gain growth through through amazing things like product-led growth and, and can be a success. And if I can do that, then the whole next generation of designers will hopefully have a much easier life ahead of them. I was going to pick up on something you said there. So um, it, it sounds like I'm too late then from what you said. Um, I, I, it's something I've, because uh, I've been, since I've been focused predominantly on UX, um, I have been mostly agency side. I've done a few um, client side things um, on startups and, and, and the like. But yeah, for the most part, it's been agency side. And mm-hmm. frustrations I have, <laughs> I think you've, you've echoed 
many of them there. And I wonder if, yeah, from what you said, it sounds like it's it's commonplace, right? You, you've uh, mm-hmm. designers often sort of slotted in to projects, and it's the business, and you know, it's it's the account directors and the, and the uh, the technical account directors often driving the things, right? And it, I guess it's that old. Uh, this is one of the things I wanted to bring up in, in one of your talks. You talk about I think your accidental design leader talk. You mentioned there how mm. designers um, you know find they find their way into leadership or, or, or a management role and mm-hmm. they finally get a seat at the table when actually all they're doing is sitting in a high chair coloring in while the grown-ups talk about the product right <laughs> um it, it, that, that that sounds like it's quite common agency side but one interesting thing i, I have seen quite recently um is uh, the role of cxo or or a chief uh, design um uh, role in in agency world which for me is quite quite mm-hmm. new and quite rare so i've been looking at those sort of with with interest right and, and maybe uh, doing a bit of uh, sniping on, on on LinkedIn and then actually seeing that they're only in those roles for like 18 months or two years at a time is why is that do you think is that because they can't fix it it's a wicked problem and they just move on to the next one or or are they able to fix it and yeah I'm, I'm just interested in why those roles don't seem to last more than a couple of years it's difficult for me to really know like I don't have much visibility in, in what's going on with the agency world these days to be honest particularly big agencies um, I think generally there is a desire to position design um, as a more strategic function. I think I'm seeing in uh, broader organisations, so large companies, you know, examples of being like Lloyds Bank, where they have hired senior design leadership at the board level and, 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 and christened them as CDOs, chief design officer. And so I suspect that what's happening in agencies is they are looking at a trend that is sh- in the industry world that is seeing design take more responsibility and they're trying to sort of mimic that trend and in a way accelerate it um, and so that wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me why if you're starting to see job titles in agencies with chief design officer um, you know it, it's partly to kind of help legitimize um, design in the minds of um, maybe some of their, their clients um, mm-hmm. I think in more traditional businesses I think becoming a chief design officer is harder I think CTO CMO are, are quite common job titles I think CDO is quite uncommon there, there, there's a growing number you know mm-hmm. Google sorry I'm um, uh, Twitter had them until they they you know um, had a big bunch of firing after Elon Musk. Um, companies like Stripe have a, a chief design officer, a design officer on the board. Um, but you have to be a company that really really values the role of design. You know you can understand why um, Twitter or, 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 or um, Skype might because both of those organisations sort of speak to that community and have big design functions in their their org and see it as a strategic element. Um, I I'm kind of jumping around a little bit here, but um, when you talk to people around how how organizations, particularly product organizations, should be sort of divided up. There's often this idea of having a trifecta that in any product team you should have a design lead, a technical lead, and a product manager. And that's a great idea. The problem where it falls down is um, if the design manager reports into um, or so the design lead reports into a head of design who reports into a product leader, and the product manager also reports into that same product leader, um, and then they mm. both report into the CTO, which is where the design the, the engineering lead reports into then even if you have yeah. parity at the product level um you don't have parity at the executive level and so if you are the design person you might have to go up three levels to have the same conversation as one of the engineering leads is having with the cto yeah or two levels with a with a product leader so i think it's important that that kind of model of design engineering and product working together in harmony 
needs to be or should be ideally reflected through the whole organization, which should have indicates that you should have a CPO, a CTO and a, a CDO. And so that would be my ideal um, uh, sort of structure if we genuinely want to get design at a seat at the table. Right. However, I think the kind of people that are attracted to product leadership roles tend to be more con- con- commercially minded. They tend to be more political. And these are two things that a lot of design leaders generally don't have in their quiver. Um, you know, they're good with people. They're good with usability. Often design leaders have some of the most kind of you know satisfied teams around because they care about this stuff. And, you know, they care about doing good work and having amazing craft. Um, but often designers struggle when they get to the higher levels of the organization to detach themselves from serving their teams and instead serve the wider organization. And, you know, that means making decisions that, that are for the benefit of the business, for the benefit of the company, for the benefit of design, you know, for product and engineering, sometimes over the benefit of the designers they're supporting. And I think designers really struggle with that. Um, and so I think it's quite rare that designers make the leap into into these board level roles partly because they're not available but also partly because I think there's a bit of a glass ceiling that a lot of designers struggle to get through because they are slightly trapped by their their craft and they need to be a little bit more pragmatic and a little bit more business driven um the, the designers that I see that do make that leap often end up doing it by going and doing a MBA right I'm not saying you have to do an MBA I'm not saying um MBAs are the best way to kind of move into a, a leadership like senior leadership role but if you go and do an MBA, you will learn an awful lot of the language of business. And, you know, as designers, we often talk about having empathy for our customers, but we very rarely d- demonstrate empathy for our, our our business partners. And one of the ways you d- demonstrate empathy is using the language they use. And so I think if we want to have better conversations with our business partners, learning their language, understanding their needs and their drivers is really important. And you can do that through an MBA. I think also having an MBA can brand you as somebody that's a little bit different. You know, you're not just a pixel pusher. You're obviously, obviously somebody like us that has gone through this process and cares about business yeah and so that is a route not the only route but it's a route i see a lot of designers taking if they want to maximize the impact they can have in their businesses and the distance they can travel within those businesses sure that's quite interesting there. obviously uh, a designer having a, an mba i think that one of the things i wanted to sort of touch on and i thought most of this conversation would be um I, i'm often bookmarking your tweets and then paraphrasing them in meetings and presentations so i wanted to pick apart some of those and one of them was um, as a designer we think it's our job to come up with the best idea um, the one that will best solve a user's problem um, and therefore stakeholders a problem but in truth our job is just come up with the least objectionable idea one that we can safely navigate through the various gates and actually I think that kind of you know that that sort of business knowledge or, or, or how business works could help designers with that right? I think so I mean I think that tweet is sort of vaguely not quite cynical but it's quite pragmatic and it's a little bit um deliberately pushing against some of the the kind of the beliefs that a lot of designers have i don't i don't fully embrace it 100 but i think there's definitely truthiness to it yeah and i think the truth lies in this fact that i think as a community as an industry as a practice we've been taught from the earliest days that our job is we're the champions of the user we're the champions of quality and if you build a product the best product possible the product that users love then it would naturally sell and so a lot of the time we go into conversations with our marketing partners our CTOs our our product partners with this kind of belief in the sanctity of the user experience that the most usable you know product that meets customers needs is the one that sells but the world is littered with beautiful unused products Mm -hmm. and it's also also littered quite bafflingly with terrible products that actually work really well Um, you know it's not so much the case anymore but people used to kind of like laugh at the terrible usability of Amazon 
you know, it's not the most usable, you know, product out there. It's, you know, it's dense, there's lots of buttons, it's shouting at you the whole time, but it's an incredibly effective machine at separating customers from their money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the time, I think um, designers want to take the moral high ground and go, well, like, you know, is that is that moralistic? And I think we often are the kind of last bastions of like moral ethical decisions inside organizations. But that can also be our failing at times because we end up, you know, looking at a lot of problems from a, an ivory tower, from a theoretical position and from a from a bit of a, a kind of a white horse. Um, and we can kind of be, we can kind of be annoying, to be honest. Like, you know, I love designers to the bottom of my heart. I want more designers in organisations. I want, you know, businesses to listen more to designers. But in order to have that impact, we also need to be able to demonstrate value. And often that value means not trying to build the perfect thing first, not trying to think yeah. that our job is to go out and, and do six months of research and come up with a dozen different kind of ideas and prototypes and pick the right one and then in a year or two's time ship a thing that will immediately be used and it'll be perfect um but that's how i think a lot of designers are taught in school i think that's how a lot of conferences teach the design process yeah absolutely and so we have this kind of sort of perfectionist um attitude and actually i think the designers that, that are really impactful are the ones that are pragmatic are the ones that know how to balance quality with speed of delivery um if i can deliver a really really good thing fast and get it 80 percent of the way that's much better than if i wait another two months and deliver the perfect thing and often perfect is never done um because that gives me a two-month gap where i could have been learning i could have been earning money but i've not because i've, I've been chasing this sort of level of perfection and so i think the really really good designers out there are ones that can balance those needs you know and i think actually to my you know my experience being an agency world is agency people are really good at that because we are given six weeks we are given three months whatever the time limit is and we have to deliver a thing within that time yeah and so we get really pragmatic about understanding needs understanding trade-offs and delivering a thing that is you know you know kind of um goldilocks zone like not too hot not too cold just right um and i think that's that's what good pragmatic design pragmatic design looks like but i think a lot of designers are kind of brought up on this idea i, I kind of joke you know like how many designers does it take to fill in a, you know to change a light bulb <laughs> well first we need to do a six month um study of light in society <laughs> and how it affects our behavior and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek yeah. but it's also true so yeah. often i meet so many people so many designers going like well you know you you know you're on amazon and and and, and the designers are going well like how do we know that people want to buy books and you're like we can see that people want to buy books i'm being kind of a bit you know again sarcastic there but it's almost the equivalent like you know people going like how do we know people want to do this and it's like well we live in a culture where people have always done this people always will do this you know there's plenty of evidence that this thing is a thing we don't need to prove that this is valuable we kind of need to do it in a way that is better than the competition we need to be able to kind of get evidence from use and, and utility and and so i'm not saying that that research isn't important i think research is massively important but i just think the answer to a lot of designers belief is oh we need to do more research we need to do more research yeah. we need to absolutely prove that this is 100 percent right and the way i liken this is i think i think design is like a game of chess there's a series of set moves and in any chess game if you are the best chess player you will win and so if you put two designers on a problem almost all the time you know the best designer will win the, the, you know the best process will win you know it's very very mathematical it's very very project driven you know the kind of the double diamond and so i think most of the time designers are playing a game of chess however the rest of their organization are playing a game of cards they're playing a game of poker where actually you're moving fast you're making lots of mistakes you're probably losing more than you're winning and that's okay as a poker player i probably expect to lose more hands than i win but what i'm doing as a poker player is i'm trying to minimize my losses and maximize my gain so i don't know what the future holds i don't really know whether this product will work i don't know who else is in the market so i'm going to play lots of hands i'm going to put lots of small bets and as soon as i start seeing that things are going my way the cards are turning in the right direction i can double down i 
can double down, I can put more money on and I'll make a big win. And so I think if you are chess players playing against poker players, um, there's always going to be a friction and, and an angriness because you're playing slightly different games. Yeah. And so I guess what I believe is that we need to stop playing this idealised, beautiful game of chess and we need to start being willing to play a slightly messy, unsophisticated, unperfect game of poker and a bunch of hands of poker as well. Because again, like you play a game of chess, you do a bunch of moves, you play one game, you win. With poker, you play dozens of hands. Yeah. And you might only win on one or two. Yeah. So we need to get comfortable losing more than we win um, and having that volume and velocity go through. So when we do win, we can win in a big way. I love that. I spoke to Dan Mar a couple of weeks ago and we were um, we were talking about how, whether you work in lean or this whole idea of, you know, failing fast and often and early because, you know, you then go on to build the thing, right? That idea of losing lots of poker hands, right? You need to do that, right? Um, and I, I feel at the moment, sometimes, yeah, we, we're often celebrating lots of the cool little wins that we do, right? We, we, we turned this thing around in two weeks because of whatever mm. constraint there was. And we celebrate all these fantastic things, but we, we don't celebrate the failures so much. And I, I think that's missing from, uh, from, from our world. We don't seem to be doing that. There doesn't seem to be that room for failure. I mean, I, I'm kind of, I, I, I sort of agree and disagree at the same time, which is kind of one of my weird traits. Like, so I know what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. I, I've, I've never been a big fan of the kind of the move fast and break things kind of like celebrate failure culture that comes very much from Silicon Valley. Because actually, I do believe that there are things, you know, you don't have to prove everything from first principles. You know, there are things that we know about the world. There are things we know about human behavior and design that we can, with a bit of thought and a bit of experience and, and smart people making decisions, we can we can solve so we don't need to solve everything in public. Um, and actually, I think, you know, I understand that the, the whole kind of celebrating failure thing really is about not getting hung up on failure. You know, I don't think we want to um, make failure a stigma. I think failure needs to be a thing that we accept and understand. And I think, you know, like I say, if you're if you're a, um, a poker player, you need to accept that you're going to lose more hands, you're going to win. Sure. So I think failure is just a natural, um, natural thing. But also, I think it can go too much the other way, where it's actually like, we don't really want to celebrate failure. We want to acknowledge it. We want to learn from it. We want to, um, you know, not have it stigmatize us. But at the same time, I think if you, you know, you see people having fail parties and all this kind of stuff, it's kind of a very Californian sort of like mentality. Um, but I kind of think I actually, you know, like, you know, use failure as an opportunity to learn. Um, but if we kind of just turn it into a bit of a party in order to not stigmatize it, we might not necessarily, you know, we might normalize it to the point that it actually becomes sort of meaningless and, and unhelpful. So I'm kind of with you in the broader kind of sense, but I think there's some nuance there, which, you know, I kind of like yeah. to get stuck into. But yeah, sure. in terms of yeah, learning from our mistakes, I think that's that's massively important and and not trying to avoid failure at all costs, which is, I think, where a lot of large organisations struggle. I think a lot of large organisations don't take the risks they need, um, don't invest enough in exploration. And so they make small, little, tiny incremental improvement. But again, in a weird kind of way, if that's the kind of culture you're in, you kind of need to accept it. Um, you know, if you're in, a, in an early stage startup where you're, you're well funded and you've got no brand and you can make a bunch of mistakes, that's great. If you're in a, in a big brand name company um, that has to post, you know, quarterly earnings, um, you maybe don't have the flexibility to, to make as big a mistakes as, as, as the startups. And because of that, everyone's going to be a bit risk tolerant. Your project managers are going to be a bit risk tolerant. Your, your boss is going to be a bit risk tolerant. And so there you kind of need to be pragmatic as a designer and go, okay, well, like, how can we de-risk it as much as possible while not losing the magic? Um, so I think risk and failure is so dependent on the company you're in, the market you're in, the size and stage you're at. Yeah. Another one of your tweets, um, I, I, I was quite nervous 
nervous about this one because I work for an agency that celebrates uh, being really good at agile and you know we're we're, we're fantastic at uh, delivering great tech quickly so I didn't want to say this out loud so I'm going to paraphrase <laughs> your tweet <laughs> um, but I, I nodded along um, with a big smile on my face when I first read it but uh, and it's part of a longer thread so I will put I will post these in the in the show notes so people can go in and, and have a look at the threads because I think they are quite interesting um, but the the secret lie of agile is that it's almost never iterative but instead a series of poorly planned mini waterfalls yeah I mean I don't know if there's any comment that needs to be made but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know I, I think agile is a really really interesting approach I think it's a better approach yeah. largely than how we used to build software 20 years ago um, sure. but I do think that the way we used to build software 20 years ago fitted slightly better with the designer's ideal approach to delivering work which is yeah. to think deeply about a problem to map all the edges of the problem to design a solution and then to put the solution into production and have it built and so designers can spend weeks and weeks and months and months talking to customers talking to stakeholders coming up with great solutions um, and you still iterate because you prototype you test you get feedback like there's nothing about the waterfall process as it applies to design that doesn't mean that you can't iterate yeah what it does mean is that probably you'll spend three four or five months designing the thing then another three four or five months your engineer is building it and you only really get to see the thing launched um in a year or two's time by which time the team have probably dissolved or gone elsewhere there's no desire to kind of do any more iterations and so so i think you iterate locally but you don't iterate in public so i think one of the dreams of agile is like continuous development right we'll we'll create a feature we'll launch it we'll see how it goes we'll make it better we'll launch that we see how it goes we make it better it's a lovely it's a lovely vision it's a lovely dream i just don't know really any i'm not any that's a that's a bit hyperbolic but i don't know many people i think 90 percent of companies don't do that 90 percent of companies have an ever-growing backlog they have an almost infinite backlog their job and the job of the product managers and the job of the product team is to deliver the backlog so you pick a ticket off the backlog you design it in isolation mm -hmm. you de deliver it deliver develop it in isolation you ship it you move on to the next thing very rarely do people ever go back and um review it or if they do they'll review it in three four five years time they don't review it like in, in, in usually in a week or two so you're not getting that iteration anyway all you're doing is you're breaking a big problem down into incremental steps and that's not a bad thing yeah. i think from an engineering perspective it's a very good thing because a lot of engineering is a, a series of you know small pieces loosely joined um but design generally isn't a, 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 a series of small pieces loosely joined at least it never was i think these days the rise of design systems has come about because we're having to have a bunch of you know small pieces loosely joined and so actually i think design systems in part are a reaction um to agile whereby you know we start building product teams that are building a design system product that is componentized to the point that it allows you to deliver design value in a in a heavily agile environment um but i think a lot of designers still want to understand the whole user journey you know and often in agile teams those user journeys are broken up across two or three product teams and so you can't and so what often happens in agile is you get really quite nicely crafted modular code but unless you have a sophisticated design system you also get like weird ghettos of user experience where as you move from one the edge of one product team to another product team you know you, you get these kind of lumps and bumps um and i think that's just one of the things that designers sadly in the world of agile have to deal with i think for a long time we push back we don't like it we want to be more considered systematic etc etc but i think the reality is in, in the modern kind of you know product world most designers are not building a thing from scratch what they're doing is they're assembling interfaces from a series of lego blocks right um and ironically with all of our focus on design systems we, we've sort of made that our job like we spent the last five 
over 10 years bigging up design systems and now we're kind of slightly moping around because our job isn't this kind of brilliant you know like I'm an architect and I'm designing this amazing experience from end to end it's like oh no I'm I'm put on this little team and we're responsible for you know this form or this part of the website and my job is to kind of assemble a nice looking form from a series of existing form elements and layouts and typographies and for a lot of designers that doesn't feel satisfying it doesn't feel like design um no. but it isn't because it's engineered to manage um large-scale production so um so yeah so you know I, again i think you know I, I do i do stand by that comment that that mostly agile isn't iterative it's mini waterfalls that never never get a chance to to be iterated on um which i think is a shame because i think particularly the agile manifesto like you know forget all the different flavors of agile some are more agile than others i, I find it hilarious that a lot of agile companies are very rigid in their process and it's like well that's not really the, the, the agile <laughs> yeah absolutely mindset. um but 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 i think it is it is the way that we work at the moment like i've always like my approach to design really is more post agile like i think there was a lot of things we can benefit from the methodologies that have been developed through agile but i think we need to look beyond that and we need to kind of be um collaborating in a more fluid dynamic way that is truly agile lowercase a rather than um picking an agile process and following it sure. but i think teams are doing that now again i think this is this is the weird thing is like everyone says they're agile and when you actually look at them they're doing their own form of agile you know where they're doing a bit of this and a bit of that but we're not yeah. doing this i mean one of the things i find hilarious is like i, I meet so many companies that say they're doing agile it's like, oh great are you doing like you know are you, are you doing two week retrospectives at the end of each sprint it's like oh no well we did a retrospective last year we might do a retrospective next year and it's like well you're not really learning are you like one of the brilliant things about agile i think is the retro the idea that every two weeks or every sprint you're constantly reviewing what you did reviewing what worked reviewing what didn't work improving tweaking and changing your process and i think if you do constantly change your process you get better and better and better and you iterate out of this kind of agile dogma into a process that really works for you and your team but if you're not if you're not doing retros then you're not learning you've just broken a big problem down into lots of small problems um they might be more manageable but actually i find that lots of small problems can be even more unmanageable than than big problems i mean i think a lot of the time your agile backlog feels like a lot of um gremlins you know just popping up getting water and sunlight and and (laughs) proliferating and you know I, I meet so many people that don't even want to kind of open the door to their kind of like their backlog because it's scary in there. So yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, we're coming up close to time. Um, I, I, I what I did notice actually this morning was a, a, a tweet um, that you made, um, and there's one point in it I just wanted to quickly um, address because it's um, it's it's I, I believe I have. But you were talking about the this wonderful new uh, Chat GTP thing. So Chat GTP mm-hmm. seems a lot better than most hiring managers when it comes to knowing how to judge the quality of design candidates although i drop the design task element so what's wrong with the design task element in in hiring people in hiring designers well th- just for the kind of the sake of your audience i just thought it'd be quite fun to um ask chat b a chat gpt um to explain how you should go about kind of recruiting and hiring designers and it actually came back with what i thought was a really sensible you know set of bullet points yeah it's pretty good obviously right. that's culled through you know probably hundreds and hundreds of articles yeah um about hiring and i thought it was quite funny but the one thing i did notice is it talked about like you say design tasks um design tasks are an interesting one um they are things that i've used in the past um and in the past i felt that they were a useful tool however in talking to a lot of friends of mine i have come to the realization that even they might be useful they might also be discriminatory for a number of reasons so first off you know what tends to happen is you say hey look go off and design this thing and we'll give you a week you know we'll set you the task on monday and you come back next monday don't spend any more than four hours on it and so first of all what happens is you're a young white single 20 year 
old, no family, no partners, maybe maybe freelancing. You actually spend a whole week on it. And so what you deliver is a beautiful, slick, you know, well thought out kind of solution. You might be a single mum or a single dad. You know, you might have a full time job. You might have caring you know, capabilities. Actually, you're probably exhausted at the end of the day at work. And so trying to find even like two or three hours at the weekend is really tough. So um, you're already disadvantaging kind of certain people over certain other people. Um, yeah. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. Like you as a design leader, if you're putting a task out, you might think, well, oh, look, you know, that's only um, something that's gonna take four hours. But if you're interviewing, if you're giving that task to 10 people, then you're generating 40 hours worth of, of work for, for those people, which is an awful lot for the industry. And if you're in- mm-hmm. interviewing one in 10 people or 10 people to do this or five people to do this, um, that probably means that you've got a one in five chance of hiring somebody, which actually means you've got a one in five chance of being hired, which means that you're probably gonna have to do five tasks in order to land the one job. Um, so that's an awful lot of work and effort you're putting on somebody to have to kind of jump over the, the, the barrier to get into your company. Now, a lot of the time people will set design tasks that are solving their problem. What they end up doing is end up basically solicitating a whole bunch of free work. I have heard stories of people that have come in, been set a design task to solve a, a logging problem of a company. Um, they didn't get the job, but then a week later or a month later, <laughs> an exact version of their solution magically appeared. Right, yeah. It might just be accidental. Or it might be those people were kind of, you know, um, getting a lot of free spec work. You know, as an industry, as a freelance industry, we've been really good at kind of saying no to spec work. I think design tasks are often a form of spec work. So if you are going to do a design task, I think you should pick a thing that has minimal um, time constraints. Um, ideally would be paid. So you'd say, hey, look, I'm going to give you five design tasks and, and I'll pay you for the time because that's a, a decent, reasonable thing to do if you're asking people to do design work. Um, and maybe it's something that isn't isn't related to um, what the company does as a, as a career. Um, I have also witnessed it massively backfire. Like I mm-hmm. still do think that design tasks can be a useful tool if you're hiring a very junior designer that doesn't have a significantly meaty portfolio yeah. and you want to give that designer an opportunity to extend their portfolio so you can see a bit more of their work. But yeah. for a lot of senior people, they'll be like, I ain't spending my weekend designing you know, a, a, f- a free project for you. And so a lot of the really best designers, you know, if Dan Moore was looking for a job, do you think Dan Moore would go off and do five, you know, design tasks for five different companies? Hell no. You know, he's a really good designer. He's got a really good portfolio. Like you look at his stuff and you go, this person is amazing. So all of the good people or many of the good people go, you should be able to tell I'm good from my work, from my case studies. I'm not even going to apply for this role because you're asking for a design task. So you put off the top cream of, 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 of people who apply. Also, if you do a search on Twitter for design tasks, you will see a lot of people, especially women, especially people of colour, say, I'm not doing this. It's yep. um, it's unethical. It's potentially um, discriminatory against people who have, you know, like I said earlier, childcare, you know, requirements, healthcare issues, all these kind of things. And so yep. also yep. what you might end up doing is you might end up putting off a, a group of people who are already underserved in the market um, who you probably actually really want to get them to apply. And so sure, you can do design tasks, but I think you will be limiting yourself to often a bunch of young white single guys, which might not necessarily be the best 
thing to do in, in this kind of day and age. It might not necessarily send the best signal. It might not necessarily endear you to the design community. And so I then generally advise people to really think hardly about whether that's a thing that they want to do. As somebody who has done yeah. it in the past and now regrets having done it. Yeah, I've, I've always been against design tasks, probably for the very reason, you know, you mentioned Dan Mole there, right? If you've got a decent enough portfolio, that should give the hirer the, enough uh, overview of your, 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 your practice and your process, right, to, to understand that. But yeah, awesome. Um, that's brilliant, Andy. I, I really appreciate your time. I know you're super busy. So thank you for taking the time to speak to me on this new podcast. Um, I, I really appreciate that. Um, wh- where can people go to, to learn more about you and find out what you're doing and um, consume some of your content? Oh dear, well, I, I feel slightly embarrassed saying this because I am still on Twitter. Um, literally, most of my kind of like, you know, OG kind of UX and, and, and um, web standards friends seem to have jumped over to Mastodon. But I just haven't kind of um, uh, summoned up the, 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 the energy or enthusiasm to hop over yet <laughs> so i'm still on twitter yeah, um i feel slightly same. guilty about it but but i've also i've got a decent number of followers there and i just don't know if i can be asked starting to build up my whole social graph again from scratch so andy bud on twitter sure. um i'm also andy bud on linkedin and andybud.com is my website so i think twitter and, and my website are still the kind of the best places to go and if any of your you know if any of your sort of listeners are designer product leaders who are looking for some coaching and some mentoring definitely reach out if any of your your listeners are people who are exploring the idea of starting their own business because i want to see more um designers become founders um do drop me a line um you know if you want to talk about kind of that journey and 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 you know how to raise money as a designer and all those kind of things i'd more than happy to chat um and yeah otherwise yeah look, look forward to speaking to you again soon awesome well with my fantastic editing skills nobody's going to know anything about the technical problems we've had trying to record <laughs> this call and it's going to sound fantastic but again thank Thanks for your time and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Excellent. Bye-bye.